Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Hosanna. My name is Jared Van Vorst, and I'm the Lakeville campus pastor here, and it's an honor to be with you this morning, and uh, thank you to all the baptism families that are joining us as well. It's such a pleasure for us to be able to walk alongside you as you go through this season of your life, and congratulations for some of you first-time parents. That's an exciting thing. I want to say welcome to anybody who's watching online as well, and uh, thank you for watching. We are in a series called Peaks of Scripture, and uh, we have these booklets that are available, but if you're watching online, this is a available as a PDF on our website, so you can check that out. Uh, We're going to invite the ushers forward to receive our tithes and offering, and so thank you for living generously, for living faithfully and biblically in your giving, and uh, we try to share a variety of ways that that's actually making an impact and multiplying the hope and heartbeat of Jesus. And one of the things that happens, and many of you probably know this if you've been coming to Hosanna for a while, is that almost every Tuesday night of the year, we're able to be be able to bless uh, a lot of people, a lot of individuals and families with a free meal, uh, with some groups where they can uh, get in community and, and be encouraged and supported by one another if they're going through some various challenges in their lives. And then there's a free clothes closet as well, just tons of supplies that people might need Uh, when they're in need. And so your giving makes that possible. So thank you so much for doing that. Uh, We are in a series called Peaks of Scripture. If you do have this booklet and you grabbed it on the way in, we're going to be on page 51 looking at that story. Uh, As we've been going throughout this series, Peaks of Scripture, we've kind of been going back and forth. There's no particular order uh, in the booklet. So don't get too freaked out by that. But uh, many of you have been going through this, maybe in your small groups as an individual. Uh, We encourage you to use this in the sermon time too, if you want to be taking notes as we go throughout the story. Uh, mountaintops are fun to, to look at, especially big things in nature. Mountaintops, starry nights, big oceans. We're sort of drawn to these uh, natural elements, right? Because they, they draw us outside of ourselves in some ways. They make us feel small but yet significant. And, and we felt like in this series, when we look at peaks of scripture, that we, we get a broader, more um, a, a sort of a bigger perspective of who God is and then who we are as a result of that. And this story is, is no exception. We're going to be looking at a pretty unique story in, uh, in this series. And uh, we're looking forward to that. But I want you to be thinking about maybe some of the mountaintop experiences that you've had in your life. Maybe it is having your first child. That can be kind of a mountaintop experience. It's exciting. It's a little overwhelming. You're not sure what to do with all of that. You haven't slept in how many days. Uh, That's a part of it. Uh, Some of us have maybe some some spiritual mountaintop experiences that we've had in our lives where, where faith kind of became real. I know for me, when I was in eighth grade, that was in 1997. So I hope that doesn't like frustrate anybody in the room. I was in eighth grade in 1997, and um, I'm too young to be preaching, apparently. Uh, And it was an exciting moment because I got to go to this Bible camp, and I had gone for three years, and by the third year, for some reason, it just kind of clicked for me. It became real, and Jesus and faith and the Bible all sort of came to life in a brand new way, and and this new passion kind of welled up within me, and it was an emotional experience. That was a major mountaintop experience for me and kind of formed me for the rest of my life at that point. Uh, and some of us, our, our students here, our, our middle school and high school students, they go on retreats and impact trips, and then they come back just completely transformed, completely changed, mountaintop experience. Uh, some, some of us have maybe more non-spiritual mountaintop experiences. I can think of kind of a big corporate one that maybe many of us in the room experience. It was just this last January, late in January. Yes, I'm talking about the Viking Saints game. It was a good one. Uh, we do have extra prayer ministers on hand. And so if you need some prayer, you're still working through that. You can go talk to them. 
Uh, but that was a good, that was a huge mountaintop experience, right? I mean, the, like that final play in the last 10 seconds of the game. Seriously, another sports analogy. Yeah, we get two a year, so I'm going to use mine right now. Uh, but that, that game was huge. But not only that, but the whole week leading at, or after the game uh, was huge for the entire state of Minnesota. My wife hates football, and yet she was like keyed in on the experience of that week. It was one giant mountaintop experience for the whole state of Minnesota. And it was huge because there were t-shirts being made that said Minneapolis Miracle, and they were being sold in stores that don't normally sell t-shirts, but all of a sudden they were in the t-shirt business, right? And then Stefan Diggs, his jersey sales skyrocketed that week. And then also, I think Care 11 was doing a, a feature on elementary schools and high schools and they'd get all these kids to dress up in purple or their jerseys and they would do the skull chant in their in their cafeteria skull skull we're not going to do it now because we don't want to get into that moment right now uh but this is it was featured in the news there was no other news that night that was it you know and it was just it was huge and it it took over and everybody was happy like we were, we were friends for like a whole week uh with everybody and then after that moment like you got to wonder, like, why, why is this moment so big? Well, one, of it, one reason is because we're from Minnesota. Like, this never happens to us, right? Especially for Vikings fans. We're like, this is huge. This is huge. And our whole mantra as, as Minnesota people, as Minnesota sports fans, is can we just get a win? Can we just, like, could we just get something go right in our direction? And, and for a time, it was feeling like, oh, okay, maybe this is it. Maybe this is our time. And where was the Super Bowl? It was in Minneapolis. Okay, so now people are starting to use words like, this is our destiny. Like, and, and seriously meaning that. You know, we're talking about sports here. It's our destiny. Uh, and, and so it was a huge, huge deal. And this was just taking off because we're like, can we just get a win? Can something go right for us? And now in this moment, it felt like this possible, especially in that last play. How many of you, before that last play, the last 10 seconds, you got up and you left the room? Yeah, it's okay to admit it. There's, there's healing for you. Uh, and, and we left and then, and then uh, like it, it happened and we thought, okay, maybe this is the time. It might seem like a strange and even cheesy and a bit of a stretch of an analogy, but I, I share all of that to take us into the story that we're about to read, because I, I think it's actually a really strong parallel for what we're going to see in the story for today, the transfiguration, because, uh, leading up to that moment, we've got the entire Old Testament here that is just filled with the people of God who are thinking and feeling, can we just get a win? Can can we just get something to go right for us one time? Because most of the story of Israel is filled with a people who are downtrodden, who are oppressed by the Egyptians, the Persians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And now in the first century, when we get to the New Testament, they're oppressed by the Roman Empire. Just constantly being beat down and just hoping for, wishing for, praying for a win, something to hang their hat on. And, and finally, Jesus shows up on the scene and they're thinking, maybe this is our time. Maybe this is our, our destiny, if you want to use that word. Maybe we're going to be on top again. We're going to be okay. Throughout the series, we've been looking at peaks of scripture, sort of these high moments, more positive moments, but most of their story is filled with just one big valley. It's a huge valley for the people of Israel. And so it's important for us, I think, as we read not just this story, but all of scripture, that we understand this story, this whole narrative is written and experienced by poor, oppressed, ancient Middle Eastern people. 
And so it's probably hard for us and we need to, we need to wrestle with that as probably more affluent, uh, modern, Western American people. Uh, as we read this, we've got to be careful not to miss some of that. And so we're going to look at this story in Mark chapter 9 called the Transfiguration. I'm starting in verse 2. And I want you to take that mindset into this story. Maybe we can get a, a win and this story uh, might reveal that. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. That's a funny line. You can probably laugh at that. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Then they asked him, why did the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Jesus responded, Elijah is indeed coming first to get everything ready. Yet why do the scriptures say that the son of man must suffer greatly and be treated with utter contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they chose to abuse him just as the scriptures predicted. Would you pray with me? God, would you give us new eyes uh, to see what's going on here? Uh, turn my eyes to wonder as we just sang about. Help us to understand what you're doing here, what you're telling us as well in 2018. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, I want to talk about some of the geographical stuff because we've been trying to do that throughout this series, the peaks of scripture. And uh, some of that can be interesting, maybe even helpful to the story. Uh, we don't actually get the, the physical name or the explicit name of the mountain in this story like we do in some other stories, uh, but it just says a high mountain. And, and most believe that it's, it's probably Mount Hermon, which is in the northeasternmost part of Israel. And it's one of the higher mountains in that region. Uh, it's about 9,000 feet. That was, that was one of the higher mountains in that, in that space. And, and also, uh, some of the clues that we get earlier in chapter 8, it says they were in Caesarea Philippi in the Galilee area. That's in the northern part. Uh, there's another interesting thing, little tidbit, it, to look at in verse 7 when it says a cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son. Uh, that's sort of a callback to a story that we actually talked about as a church a couple months ago, the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus actually took place uh, in the southern part, most believe, in the southern part of Israel, down by the Dead Sea area. And so it's kind of just interesting that the beginning of Jesus's ministry starts in the lower part of Israel, and then we get to what seems to be the pinnacle of the story in, in the life of Jesus, at least here in this part of the story, is at a high, high spot. Dead Sea is a, the, the lowest spot. The high mountain, Mount Hermon possibly, is the highest spot in Israel. And so very fitting that Jesus would be here for this, this story, this unique event. But also this, this phrase, this is my dearly loved son, listen to him. 
Again, as a callback to what they said, what the voice said to Jesus in his baptism. So that's kind of an interesting little nugget. But also we need to kind of tackle some weird stuff, especially if you're newer to church, newer to the Bible, newer to Jesus. This is kind of weird what's happening. His whole appearance is transformed. His clothes look dazzling white. And then maybe even the weirdest thing is Elijah and Moses just randomly appear and they begin talking with Jesus. That's, that's kind of strange. If you know anything about some of the Bible history, Moses and Elijah existed uh, hundreds and even thousands of years before Jesus, respectively. And now all of a sudden they're just here talking with Jesus. Like, what are, what are we supposed to do with that? What, what's that about? And, and some Jewish thought is that Moses and Elijah didn't die technically in the traditional sense. Uh, actually, the, the Bible says that Moses was buried by the Lord, which is kind of interesting. And Elijah was just taken up, just taken up. That's how the Bible kind of describes their death experience, not a traditional death experience. And so some Jewish thought believed that, well, maybe they didn't actually die in the traditional sense. And so it actually wouldn't have been weird for them to see Moses and Elijah. They still sort of existed in some different state. Not necessarily important for our purposes here today, but I think it's just important to to recognize that that's a bit strange But also, I think it's even more important to recognize why were they there? Why them? Why those two figures? What did they represent? See, Moses and Elijah are just two figures in the Old Testament, but the Old Testament's filled with all kinds of people. They could have inserted anybody in this story, but why Moses and Elijah? This, I think, is important for the story that we're reading because Moses, uh, Moses is absolutely like a hero for the Jewish people and their faith because he identifies with what it means really to be the people of God, to be Jewish. Moses is, is sort of the agent between God and God's people to establish this covenant relationship. He's the one that gets the Ten Commandments. He gets the Torah or the law from God and gives it to the people. And it sort of gives this, this covenant people a way to be, a way to live. And so Moses is absolutely crucial in the history and the, the overall story of what it means to be a Jewish person. Elijah is similar in that he represents one of the main prophets. Prophets were, were crucial in their day to bring about the truth of God and the hope of things to come. And Elijah, we just learned about Elijah last week, actually. If you were here last week, Pastor Ryan uh, gave a wonderful message about Elijah in one of his stories. If you didn't get a chance to see that or hear that, go back and listen to it. But Elijah is a key figure. He's a hero of their faith as well. And so you've got Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophet, the law and the prophets represented here along with Jesus. This is a This is a very important scene here, actually, why Moses and Elijah are here together. It's almost like if, uh, think about it as an American, we have have some crucial pieces in our history as well. So we, we don't have the law, we have the Constitution, right? And then we have a key figure like George Washington or Benjamin Franklin. You could insert any historical figure in there. But if you take those key elements away, all of a sudden our history looks very, very different, right? It kind of defines who we are as an American, uh, for the Jewish people, it's, it's no different. Moses and Elijah and what they represent is absolutely crucial for who they are as a people. They put their hope in Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And then what happens? Look at verse nine. Suddenly when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone and they saw only Jesus with them. What just happened here? 
They took the, the most key, crucial figures, the key players in their story and removed them, leaving only Jesus standing there. This is a This is a massive message for Peter, James, and John who are Jewish. This is part of their history. And all of a sudden, it's just Jesus there. It's only Jesus. It's Christ alone. There is no one like him. God's trying to send a very clear message to Peter, James, and John up on this mountain that Jesus is the one you'd been waiting for. He is indeed the Messiah, the one to come to save you. This is huge. And there's other parts of scripture that say Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. And there's another part where Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus is embodying everything that Moses and Elijah came to do, but he's bringing brand new life to it and making it even better than what it was intended to be. He's more, he's better He's the only one they need to be looking to. This is a massive message for Peter, James, and John. How do they respond to all of this? Because this is big news. Well, Peter says, let's stay here. Let's build some shelters. Let's memorialize this moment, right? And don't we do that when we're on mountaintop experiences? <laughs> I just want to stay here. This is, it's just better here. Now, later on, it says that he said this because he didn't really know what else to say. That, that is kind of funny, but there, there is purpose in what he's saying here, actually. It's a very Jewish statement that he's saying. It's kind of a, a callback or a reference to something that is Jewish. It's a, it's a holiday or festival called Sukkot, Sukkot. And it, it, it's the festival of, of shelters or the Feast of Tabernacles. It goes by a number of different names. Uh, but it was, it was a celebration of what God had done or what God did for them in the wilderness to protect them, to provide shelter for them when they were in the wilderness thousands of years before. And they, they celebrated that, that all throughout their history. And in fact, they still continue to celebrate that. Even today, you can go to Israel and you can see uh, during Sukkot for several days, maybe even weeks, they build these sort of makeshift tents outside of their, their normal homes. And what they do in those tents is they, they live there. They do everything in there. They cook, they clean, they eat. They do life in the tent. And so what Peter is saying here essentially is, let's stay here. Let's live here. Let's do life here. This is where it all makes sense. This is where it feels safe. This is where it feels like we're winning again. This is what this whole thing was supposed to be about. This is what the Messiah is all about. And yet that's not where they stay. They don't stay there. Look at the next verse, verse nine. As they went back down the mountain. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, it's sort of becoming a bit of a theme is going down the mountain. It's not just about the peak. It's also about what's down below. It's maybe even more important to recognize that, what's down below. They go back down the mountain. Oh, now it feels like we're losing again. I, I wanted to stay there. I wanted to build shelters there. I wanted to live there where it all made sense, where it's all clear. But they don't. They go back down the, the mountain. They go down into the valley. And as the story continues, they're immediately greeted with arguing and polarizing debates and skepticism. And then a demon-possessed boy who's convulsing and foaming at the mouth. I mean, the valley is just filled with chaos and mess and it's gross and ugly and disgusting and nobody wants to do life 
in the valley, and yet this is where Jesus takes them. And he goes all the way into the valley, even to the valley of the shadow of death. Which shouldn't have been a surprise to Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the disciples. And yet, it was, because Jesus is constantly talking about death. As they go down the mountain, they're, they're having a conversation about Jesus suffering and dying. Why? He's the Messiah. The Messiah is not supposed to die. We're, we're supposed to win. We're supposed to take over. And yet he talks about death. And even death on a cross. And that's where the story ends up. Death on a cross. See, this is a challenging message for Peter. And I hate to go back to the Vikings analogy, but it's absolutely important to the story. See, we, we spent that whole week just in pure elation and joy and excitement and anticipation for what was to come. And we're thinking, maybe this is our time. Maybe this is our chance. We just want to stay here in this moment and just feel this forever. What it feels like to win. And then we get to the game against the Eagles. And it's just a complete loss. I mean, definitive loss. It's not even like, a, oh, it was a moral victory. No, it was a loss. It was a clear loss. And then we go into that mantra again. Well, well, that's what it's like to be a Minnesota fan, right? Here we go again. This is what always happens to us. As we, as we look back into this story, there's a lot of parallels, but I would argue for much greater implications here. Peter, James, and John, the rest of the people of Israel had maybe put their hope in Jesus thinking, oh, surely he's the Messiah. No, he died. This always happens to us. This always happens to us. We're losing again. And the cross is one giant definitive loss. At least that's what they thought. Why were they so confused by this? See, Mark's gospel, out of all of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark uh, some argue is the one that, that points people, points his readers most to the cross, to the death of Jesus. And not just the event of the cross, not just what happened on the day that Jesus died, but more so the entire life that Jesus lived, a way of life. The cross is not just an event, but it's a way of life. And not just the ministry of what takes place on the cross, that the cross brings about forgiveness, the promise of the forgiveness of sins. Oftentimes we think about it like, well, Jesus died on the cross so that I could go to heaven. Well, sort of. It's the promise of the resurrection that we get to experience the joy of heaven. The, the ministry of the cross promises that life on this earth will be challenging, will be difficult, may include suffering, but they didn't get it. They were blind to it. Jesus talked about death, not just in this story, but in the story before. He says this, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. This is not just about the event of the cross, but I would say what some call a cross-shaped life. Jesus is inviting us into a cross-shaped life that our whole lives would take the form of the cross, not a literal cross, but the concept of what the cross is all about. Forgiveness, servanthood, sacrifice, 
unconditional love. For the people that we love, yeah. For the people that we don't love. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This is a cross-shaped life that Jesus is inviting his disciples into and us into, and yet they are continually blinded by it. In fact, this story falls between two stories of Jesus healing a blind man. It's about the healing of the blind man, but it's also about a spiritual blindness that his disciples have and that you and I sometimes have. I don't want to live a cross-shaped life. That's not for me. No, I want to get ahead. I want to win. I don't want to lose. And yet this is the ministry of the gospel. And if we're not careful, we often miss that. We often miss that. This has to inform who we are as people. It absolutely does. And don't get me wrong, the resurrection is powerful. There is the hope and the promise of the resurrection, but Mark would urge us not to go there too quickly. Don't just jump right to the resurrection and tie it all up nice with a nice neat bow. No, instead, listen to what the whole narrative of Mark's gospel is talking about. The cross-shaped life. In fact, if anything, Mark has the shortest version of the story of the resurrection. It's just a few verses long. And it even ends like this, the original ending of Mark, chapter 16, verse 8. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. Period, the end, end of story kind of abrupt, right? And so some say that Mark's intent is to say, yes, there is the hope of the resurrection, but it's risky because it's going to cause you and compel you into a life that looks cross-shaped. Does this shape us as followers of Jesus? Or is it just about, well, I go to heaven when I die? No, it's got to be more than that. Hard message for us as Americans In our culture, this is super hard to listen to and reflect on and to take up. I I was confronted with this in a a brand new way. Uh, I'll share a story of what happened for me about two years ago. I'd been a pastor for a little while here at Hosanna. We, We have a different process where we commission pastors. And then once you're commissioned, you get to do some weddings and baptisms and funerals. And um, I hadn't done a funeral up to this point in 2016. And all of a sudden I got a call on Valentine's Day of 2016 and there was a family um, from Hosanna and the people on the phone said, we, we need you to come to the hospital. This family just had a, a really bad accident and uh, we'd like for you to come to just be with them and talk with them, pray with them. I said, sure, I'll, I'll come. And so I went and by the time I got there, uh, I went into the room and I, I didn't recognize them uh, they, they do go to Hosanna, but I didn't know them. So it's sort of this cumbersome, sort of awkward moment where you're, you're getting to know them really quickly, but then also uh, getting caught up on some of the details of the story. And then what I realized from the time that I got off the phone to the time that I got to the hospital, that their two-year-old son had already passed away. And so immediately in that moment, I'm thrust into what it, I think truly means to become a pastor and to walk alongside people who are in their greatest time of need. Not just the mountaintops, but in a very, very low valley. And we, we cried together and we talked and I, I did a lot of listening. I tried to ask them questions. Just tell me some stories about your son. And it was this beautiful yet really hard, messy moment. 
And this is what Jesus invites me into, invites all of us into. And if I don't have that mentality or that perspective of a cross-shaped life, of embracing difficulty and disappointment, and yes, even suffering, then pastoring is gonna be really hard, let alone following Jesus. And so it was uh, about a day later, they called and asked if I would do the funeral. And so my very first funeral as a pastor here at Hosanna was for a two-year-old little boy. I'll never forget that. It did kind of have a a redeeming sort of coming full circle uh, moment to it. About a year and a half later, they had another son and they asked if I would come and baptize him. And so I got to be part of that. And that was such a special moment, a unique moment too. Because all the while we're we're in this room and there's family and friends and everybody who who was present at the funeral previously, that's sort of all in the back of our minds and we're remembering that and yet we're celebrating and taking joy in this new moment, this new life. It's bittersweet. But to watch this family's faith in the midst of it all was so impactful for me. And it's continued to shape me and will continue to shape me as a pastor. And I would ask, how might the cross-shaped life be shaping you? It's not just about the mountaintop experiences like social media would try to convince us of. It's about the valleys as well. See, I would put it this way, that mountaintops are transformational, but valleys are formational. There's a subtle difference there. Mountaintops are transformational in that they change us in in a moment, like overnight, in snap of a finger. It's like, oh my gosh, I I get it. This is clear. It's, It's changed me. This is amazing. This is beautiful. Whatever adjective you want to put in there, mountaintop experiences are awesome, but they're short lived. It's temporary. You can't live on a mountaintop. You have to quickly go back down. And valleys become formational, forming us in our everyday, the long, slow, sometimes monotonous process of just doing life in the valley. And it's actually in the valley where we're the most formed to look more and more like Jesus, to be refined into the people of God that he wants us to be. See, we don't look uh, with, with disgust or with hatred on the valley, but we actually look to the valley to say, that's where I need to grow. That's where I need to be in order to be like Jesus. Because that's where Jesus goes. Jesus comes off of the mountain and goes down into the valley, even to the point of death. Mountaintops are transformational. They are. They're beautiful moments and they can give us perspective. But valleys are formational because that's where we do life. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes and just reflect on what that might mean for you as living out the cross-shaped life. Some of you are doing that. Some of you are experiencing that. Maybe you didn't know that that's what you could call it, but you are living that. Some of you watching online, you're, You're meditating on on what that means for your life as well. I invite you to reflect on these thoughts. The Bible talks about us dying to ourselves, taking up our cross, giving up our life so that we can gain our life. All these sort of paradoxical statements. And some of you are learning what that means as you sort of lift up your spouse Maybe you're walking through a tough time in your relationship right now. 
Maybe you're even on the brink of, you know what? I don't think this is gonna last. That's a scary, scary valley to be in. What might it look like for you to lift up your spouse as hard and as excruciating as that might be? Maybe it's at work. Some coworkers, you're learning what it means to lift up your coworkers, to die to yourself, to not always be concerned with being right, but to lift them up. Maybe it's for parents. Your kids constantly need you. They need your attention. They need you to to care for them, to to do everything for them in in the younger years. And it's just so fatiguing. You're exhausted. What does it look like for you? Maybe it's setting aside time. Some of you are learning to do this as well. You're setting aside time, some additional time that you just don't have for loved ones in your life who are suffering from depression and anxiety and maybe other mental cases. Maybe it's holding somebody's hand while they're receiving chemo treatments or they receive a painful diagnosis of some kind. And then some of you are learning what it means to honor and love somebody while disagreeing with them. Some of you are learning what it means to be compassionate and to have a heart for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the foreigner among you. The Bible is explicit in using all of those words to describe people who are not like us. And yet Jesus shows unconditional love and compassion for those on the outside. What is that looking like for you? And here's the paradox of it all is that ultimately when we embrace the cross-shaped life, that's where true hope and freedom and joy and love is most experienced. That's where it becomes real. It doesn't make sense, but when you begin to live into it, it just comes alive that much more. It comes alive. I want to end much in the same way that we began and invite you to stand if you are able. And I'd like for us to read a psalm together as we continue in our time of worship. It's Psalm 121. It'll be on the screens. Let's say this aloud. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's this definitive, does my help come from there? No, no. It comes from God. I don't look to the mountains for success for happiness, for joy. No, I look to Jesus, to him alone. May you, as you go throughout this week, look to the Lord, whether you're on a mountain or you're in the valley. May you look to Jesus. May you embrace the cross-shaped life to give you true hope and freedom and joy for the life ahead and ultimately for life eternal because it's only found in Christ alone, in Christ alone. We're gonna sing about that right now. Let's sing.